As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and it is World Cup season over here in America. Maybe not right now with in terms of the World Cup being played, but we've got the men going to Qatar. We've got the U-20s going to the U-20 World Cup in Indonesia, the U-20 men's. And we've got the U.S. women securing their spot at next summer's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Here with me to talk about a lot of U.S.-centric stuff is my friend and yours, Mr. World Cup himself. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hi, Taylor. Yes, I'm working on getting my business cards changed as we yep. speak to sort of a Pitbull-adjacent soccer title, Mr. World Cup. Uh, <laughs> it, it's been difficult. I don't know why, but uh, we're getting closer. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that effort, Joe. If you were looking to take a vacation and also cover soccer, which of those three host nations has the most appeal? Qatar, Indonesia, or New Zealand, Australia combined? I'm guessing I can finish. guess which one finishes last for you. Yeah, not Qatar. Um, yeah. Generally speaking. Speaking, not not all that eager to go to Qatar. I don't know, Taylor, a whole lot about Indonesia. I don't really know what the, the landscape is like. I'm just generally ignorant about that. So based off of what I know, I think I'd prefer to go to New Zealand in particular over any of those other places. But Australia, other than all the snakes, although I, I think New Zealand has snakes too. Other than the snakes, I'm down for Australia. And once I learn about Indonesia and know where to go and what to do, I'm all about Indonesia too. All right. Well, maybe we'll be sending you to both because uh, the U-20s are going to be there. I know you have an interest in them. And I know you have an interest in the U.S. women's national team as well. You've been writing about them for Backyield. We've been talking about them on the show, but we haven't talked about them much in terms of what they've actually been doing at the CONCACAF W Championship. And what they've been doing is securing World Cup qualification and playing some good soccer. Uh, they have now qualified out of their group for the knockout round. That's why they've qualified for the World Cup. They beat Haiti in their opener 3-0. They trounced Jamaica last night 5-0. Could have been more, I think, against Jamaica, maybe even against Haiti. Joe, two games, two wins, eight goals, World Cup qualification secured. I'm guessing Vlatko is feeling okay with that start to things. Yeah, you'd have to think so, right? It, it is kind of funny to me, Taylor, just as we sit here having covered the U.S. men's national team's yeah. path to qualification and how painful that was. The contrast is so real between that process and these two games win and, and you're in kind of situation. 
situation, this was easy for the U.S. Women's National Team. It doesn't mean that they were flawless, but again, I think one of my one of my macro takeaways from this tournament so far is that the U.S.'s dominance relative to at least some CONCACAF nations, pretty much everybody but Canada, is still alive and well. And that was never really in question coming into this tournament. The U.S. should have done exactly what they did headed into this this third game against Mexico, which will be on Monday. They already locked things up, and they needed some help to actually go and do that. But still, it's not a surprise that they qualified for the World Cup. That is the expectation for this team, just as really the expectation should be to qualify for the Olympics as well. But the first box has been checked, right? The U.S. is going to the 2023 World Cup. That was one of the two primary results-driven objectives in this tournament. And I think Vlatko, for that very reason, has to be happy. I think there's still things that need to be ironed out on the field, and we can talk about a lot of those intricacies later. But yeah, good good start for this U.S. team in terms of the results, and I, I think a really strong, generally speaking, performance against Jamaica last night. I do want to talk about those intricacies a little bit more a little bit later, but I want to talk about that broader idea for a moment. The idea that the United States wasn't flawless but still looked dominant, and uh, you see like the results, you see the scores, you see how happy this team looks, and it's easy to think, like, oh, it's all good, Vlatko's figured it out, he's got youngsters in there, he's got veterans in there, but... And that may well be the case, but I look at some of the reaction on on social media, on Twitter and Reddit. Uh, I saw some of the reaction to the lineups and some of the analysis, and it still feels like there are people who are frustrated by some of his choices, frustrated by the way the U.S. plays at times. Um, And I'm not asking you to kind of make heads or tails of that, Joe. I guess what I'm asking you is when we have a team like the U.S. women who have been so dominant, who are so good, at times it feels nitpicky to be like, oh, a three no win, a five no win, but they should have done this and they could have done that. But at the same time, that is the difference in how you stay at that top level. So I guess for you, I'm curious, how do you go about watching this team to sort of bridge that divide to still be able to find some of those nuances that can be improved upon or areas for just further development or exploration versus recognizing how talented of a squad this team is? Well, it's, I think it's pretty easy when you turn on this, the TV or, or fire up your computer to see how talented the team is pretty much right off the bat. Sophia mm-hmm. Smith really struggled against Haiti, but then five minutes into that game against Jamaica, Taylor, I know you saw this, she yeah. has that absurd goal out on the right where she, she taps the ball over a defender and then she finishes with the outside of her right foot, and it looks like she did it on purpose. I wasn't really sure if it was supposed to be a ball to Mallory Pugh or, or what that was supposed to accomplish, but it sounds like from what she said after the game that she practices that outside of the butt f- boot finish doesn't usually score them, but actually did score that one against Jamaica. You see how talented this team is. You see Rose Lavelle working between the lines. You see Ashley Sanchez just doing ridiculous one-touch side foot flicks. I mean, you see all that stuff very early on. I do fall pretty squarely in the contingent that is looking for the U.S. to maximize that last 10 or 15%. I kind of do fall in the nitpicking area against even against teams like Haiti and Jamaica. Haiti, I think, was, was much stronger than Jamaica because... When the U.S. actually comes up to play Canada in CONCACAF, if that should happen in the knockout rounds of this tournament, when they are playing at the World Cup and they're playing against good teams that we're seeing in Europe or that we're seeing from South America or Africa, whatever that looks like, there are better teams out there than, than Haiti and Jamaica. And if the U.S. isn't practicing now to fire on all cylinders and really maximize their talent, which is so clear to see... If they're not maximizing that now, there's no reason, based off of what we've seen from Black Coast so far in this tenure, to think that they'll magically be able to flip the switch in big tournaments against good teams. We watched all of those Olympic games, Taylor, for the U.S. We watched them play Sweden. We watched them play Canada. We watched them struggle in those games and fail to get results in key moments and break 44 match unbeaten streaks. Like, we've seen that before. 
I think that's why there's a lot of folks out there that are, are that are nitpicking a little bit, in addition to just people doing that stuff. And I guess I kind of fall into that group in general. But that's why we see this is because the U.S. just doesn't have, at least over the last couple of years, that super positive track record that we're used to. They've won a ton of games, but in the one big tournament we've seen from Blackco and this team, they fell short. And I think people are, are wanting to protect themselves from seeing that again. And I'm hoping that we'll see this U.S. team build and continue to improve on that last 10 or 15 percent from game to game in this tournament. I think that's what I struggle with is that that idea of like it feels you're you're beating a team five nil you're putting in subs at halftime you seem pretty dominant and I think in any ninety minute game there's going to be an opportunity where you give a shot away or maybe there's a defensive breakdown or a pass or a couple passes that shouldn't have come off and that that's where to me it does feel like nitpicking but at the same time Joe I think you're absolutely correct that those little breakdowns those little flaws are the ones that against stronger opposition or more rested opposition or just more talented across the board opposition, that's where the difference can be made. So I guess we should spend some time on some of those issues, some of those concerns, but let's not let the the, the negative cloud the positive. From these first two games, from those eight goals, Joe, what are some of your favorite things you've seen either tactically or individually? Yeah, and, and one sorry, one quick thing in response to that, Taylor, before I dive into some some maybe macro and even micro takeaways. I think I think you're right. It is by nitpicking and by looking at things the US team should improve, we really we shouldn't necessarily take away from the individual results that they're getting. You can almost look at this on, in two timelines. You can look at it as the 90 minutes against Haiti or the 90 minutes against Jamaica where you get the job done and and you don't really ever look all that threatened by the opposition. Those are those are valuable things and that's a, a positive thing for this US team. But then there's the other timeline that looks at it in a much larger sense that says, okay, these are things that you did well in this game, but hey, here's this last little chunk that you need to improve if you're trying to go and beat Canada in convincing fashion, if you're trying to beat Canada at all and get a result later on in this tournament and make it to the Olympics or at the Olympics or at the World Cup. So I think it's helpful to look at it in, in both of those timelines and time horizons, whether or not that's always the easiest thing to do and keep straight is a different story. But in terms of, in terms of takeaways from this team so far, I'll start with just a, a major tactical one. I thought there was a pretty stark contrast between how the U.S. attacked and how they created chances against Haiti versus how they attacked and how they created chances against Jamaica in a much, uh, a much more positive and, and aesthetically pleasing even, and I would argue effective attacking approach against Jamaica. So in that first game against Haiti, I wrote about this, all three of the U.S.'s goals come from either crosses or recycled set pieces with a lofted ball into the box. They were all relatively hopeful crosses. Mallory Pugh's first cross into Alex Morgan that results in that first goal, maybe a little less so, but they're all still just getting the ball out wide, pumping balls into the box, and hoping for some sort of scramble ball to then result in a goal. And it worked for the U.S. in that game. They didn't need a whole lot more than that, and you can beat teams like Haiti with that approach. But against Jamaica, I thought we saw a lot more diversity in how the U.S. attacked. Even that first goal that I mentioned, Taylor, Sophia Smith driving down on that right side, you had her actually driving at a player, which we didn't see a whole lot against Haiti. Smith really struggled. The U.S. in general didn't take a ton of players on. You had Mallory Pugh drawing fouls out wide and crashing really hard at the back post. You had players breaking in behind the back line. Ashley Sanchez finding Rose Lavelle for that. I believe it was the third goal for the U.S. last night. You have Sanchez actually running in behind and then finding a runner. Yes, it's still sort of a cross in that situation, but at least you're crossing back. It's almost more like a cutback than it is like a hopeful cross from wide where there's a numbers disadvantage in the box. That was a really encouraging thing because we talked about this, Taylor, before this tournament about how, how reliant the U.S. was on crosses. And I think that's still a key part of their DNA. There was still plenty of that against Jamaica, don't get me wrong. 
But that, I think, is encouraging. I'm wondering, did you notice any more attacking quality or just a difference in how the U.S. played? Obviously, they scored two more goals against Jamaica. But what did you see from the U.S.'s attack, either against Jamaica or, or maybe in both of these games, Taylor? Specifically against Jamaica, I did feel like we saw more individual 1v1 quality. Yeah. And not just Sophia Smith, although she is definitely a big part of it. And I do think she meant that goal. I thought it was pretty cleverly disguised. Um, but I think a, a thing that maybe we've seen like more often recently, but I just haven't paid as much attention to, was that old kind of cycle of the wide midfielders, the two number eights moving very wide and the attackers moving very central. And I understand why they do that to kind of get that front three, pushing that back line back and making those runs behind, but clearing out space from Ash- maybe Ashley Hatch, let's say, to drop in. What I don't always love it so much is that I think it removes that opportunity to take people on 1v1, and it almost slows things down to look for that cross. So I did see them doing that last night with like Rose Lavelle almost being wide on the touchline more often than, say, Sophia Smith. But at the same time, the rotation and the movement and the way players just kept popping up, and then when there was space to be attacked centrally, I saw Emily Fox in particular attacking that, either playing a ball directly into Hatch or carrying the ball into that space herself. It seemed like the United States had multiple different options for how they wanted to attack and the shape they wanted to take. But I I still err on the side of I wouldn't mind seeing just a bit more of those individual 1v1s and some of that sort of expression because I think it's not just they have the technical ability, Sophia Smith has the ability and speed to beat somebody. She does. But it's also if she gets past one defender or two, we talk about it all the time, how that's a domino effect and people have to come try to cover and make kind of last-ditch plays and that opens up space in the middle and it leaves people unmarked and it just creates a more chaotic situation than sort of slow, steady buildup. And I think Haiti showed if you press in unexpected moments, you can disrupt that pretty effectively. Yeah, Taylor, I think you're really smart to highlight the different rotations in possession for this U.S. women's national team. They do send the the center mids wide. The fullbacks have different spots. Emily Fox really, in the first game, her her role was weird on that left side. Almost all the play against Haiti came down the U.S.'s right. And so I didn't feel like Fox was involved much at all in that game. But against Jamaica, she was occupying that half space a ton with Pew out wide or maybe Ashley Sanchez out wide and trying to drive forward. And I still don't think she had her best game, but you could see some more of the intricacies of how the U.S. is trying to attack. To go back to those 1v1 moments that you're talking about and the U.S. being a little more aggressive against Jamaica in that way, I think that's a huge way that the U.S. can press their advantage in these kinds of games. They're almost always, against any team in the world right now, I think the U.S. almost always has a 1v1 qualitative advantage in the attack. And so what I mean by that is just basically, Sophia Smith is going to be better than the opposing left back. Mallory Pugh is going to be better and faster and more technical than the opposing right back. That's the benefit of having these really talented players. Alex Morgan is going to be able to read the game a little bit quicker than the opposing center back that's trying to step to her or trying to drop to give her a little space so they don't get burned in behind. You have those advantages. And part of my issue with the U.S. just pumping in cross after cross is that you're not actually trying to take advantage of those things. You're not trying to use your athletic ability to get in behind and create space in that way and then get the domino effect. You're not trying to dribble at someone to, to make those plays happen and take real advantage of that, that advantage that you have, right? So I thought it was an encouraging, it's a little too early for me to be totally convinced, but I thought it was an encouraging development from game one to game two just to get little glimpses of what these players can do when they have that that ability to drive at you when they actually beat you on the dribble. Mallory Pugh, Taylor, I, I don't know how you feel about this. I don't think we've seen the best of Mallory Pugh in this tournament so far. I don't I don't think she's really 
put her mark on a game yet. She's doing valuable things. Her off-ball movement's pretty good. She's driving at players, at least against Jamaica. I think we're still waiting to see Mallory Pugh unlocked. And when we do see that, I'm guessing it's it's probably not going to be in this third group stage game now that the group is a top two finish is locked up. But maybe it is, given that you want to finish top. Whenever that is, if, if Mallory Pugh can really get going and Sophia Smith takes this form against Jamaica into whatever she's playing next, now you're really cooking with gas. And I, I want to see those two players attacking and going downhill because that's just a huge advantage that they have. I think it depends on what is being asked of Mallory Pugh as to how much I've enjoyed her performances. Because if she is sort of meant to be a a, a chaos creator, I think she's doing a good job of that. And I promise that's not a backhanded compliment. She's not creating chaos for the United States. But I saw her playing on the left. I saw her playing on the right. I saw her playing centrally uh, at times versus Jamaica. And I think she has that speed but has that ability and I would say the crossing and passing ability to sort of pop up in unexpected areas and spot those uh, potential opportunities when there's an overload somewhere else. And I think she's been doing a good enough job. I think you're right to to call out that maybe it could be elevated to that next level. I think sometimes her crossing is slow. Sometimes her decision-making uh, could just be a little bit faster. She could spot some opportunities just a little bit more quickly. And I know this is... Um, something that you all wrote about on Backyield. The same goes for Sophia Smith, I think, especially in that uh, Haiti game. You could see she just wasn't, maybe didn't have the reps, didn't have the the level of chemistry with the rest of the team, but some of her decisions were just a little bit slower, a little bit sure. more designed to keep that ball, to keep possession, but not maybe probe for opportunity, probe for vulnerability, and ideally create a goal. And even in those moments when she slows it down, she also doesn't end up retaining possession a couple different times. And so I think those were moments when for Smith and Pugh, I think we saw the game not being fully developed enough yet. I think we would expect that in the near future, but for now, I guess those are sort of maybe some of the 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 rougher areas that can be smoothed out as we go. One other macro takeaway I had on this team really relates to that first game against Haiti. Defensively, I think the U.S. has to protect Becky Sauerbrunn when she's playing, and, and that's kind of the reality right now. I know there was some real talent in that Haiti attack. DeMornay was phenomenal in that game, and she was clowning a, a couple of different U.S. players at times, and she's just a, a top-level talent. So so that is, I guess, a little bit of a, of a point in Sauerbrunn's favor here. There was quality in that Haiti attack, but man, she got roasted multiple yeah. times. One in the box that forced Casey Murphy into making a, a huge save, and one other time I believe she steps up into midfield and just doesn't win that challenge and gets blown by, and then Emily Fox has to, to foul. She probably didn't have to foul, but that's what ended up happening in that sequence. To give up a penalty to Haiti, that could have narrowed the scoreline and, and really changed maybe how we view this game and talk about this game, or at least how it is viewed and talked about. So I, I think at this point, Sarabin, we've only seen one game from her. So she started against Haiti next to Alana Cook in a, in a back four defensively. And we see uh, Naomi Gurma and Alana Cook starting against Jamaica in that same back four defensive shape. shape. So Gurma was playing in Sauerbrunn's spot. And uh, Jamaica didn't threaten the U.S. nearly as much, even though Bunny Shaw's a really, a really imposing and skillful attacker up top for Jamaica. They didn't really threaten. And I, I don't know if that's exactly because Gurma and Alana Cook defended better in that game or if it's just because Jamaica is a worse team. I tend to think it's maybe more the latter than the former. But either way, Sauerbrunn getting dusted a couple of times in that first game. And, and when you watch some of those clips, Alana Cook just sort of jogging back and the U.S. not giving her enough cover 
if if Sauerbrunn's going to play in big games and she's the captain of this team with the most caps, I believe, of any player on this roster, if she's going to be playing, and it sounds like she will based off of her pedigree and her time with this U.S. team, she needs to be protected more. And I think the U.S. is going to have to tighten up defensively in those moments where Sauerbrunn is caught out a little bit and where she has to step. If you want her on the field, you have to accommodate her to a certain sense. It's kind of like, Taylor, I equate it to when we're talking about John Brooks, right? John Brooks is good at a lot of things. Becky Sauerbrunn is good at a lot of things and brings valuable experience, but she needs to be protected at the stuff she's not good at if you want to get the most out of her on the field. And I know it's only a small sample size, but I, I think as the U.S. goes deeper into this tournament, covering her and, and giving her a little bit of a break defensively is only going to become more important. And Becky Sauerbrunn and John Brooks have made the same number of appearances for the U.S. men's team in the last six months or so. So another <laughs> parallel there. Uh, we're going to keep talking about the U.S. defense in just a moment. First, a quick break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. We are back. We're talking the U.S. Women's National Team. We're talking the defense. We're talking Becky Sauerbrunn. Joe, I agree with you. Becky Sauerbrunn must always play for the U.S., and she always will, uh, even if she is a little bit older and maybe, as you said, didn't look fleet afoot against Haiti. Are If we are going to stick with her, and we would assume that Tierna Davidson would be in the conversation, we would assume Abby Dolkemper is still in the conversation, neither of them uh, here at this competition. So how... Have you enjoyed what you've seen from Gurma and Cook so far? Uh, maybe not even as deputies to Becky Sauerbrunn, but just sort of of the two of them, what have you liked? What have you not liked? We can throw Alana Cook, maybe not sprinting full speed against Haiti into that sure. one too. Yeah, some of the defen- lack of defensive intensity from Alana Cook in that first game I thought was a minus. Generally, though, I, I don't think Alana Cook's passing was totally precise or has been totally precise in these two games. And I mentioned she's a capable passer back when we talked before this tournament, but maybe not the sharpest I have liked a lot of the the attempted passes and some of the ones that have come off from Alana Cook she's a target on set pieces she can contribute defensively both in the air and in those moments when she's active and engaged in recovery defense but she also has attempted some real line breaking passes now Haiti and Jamaica Haiti was certainly more organized defensively than Jamaica was but neither one was putting a ton of pressure on the U.S. center back so it's not like we can definitively say based on these games that that Alana Cook can pass out of the back under pressure because we just haven't seen it but she can can break lines. She can keep the ball moving in possession. And I think I think we're going to see more of that. And I hope we see even even better possession play from Alana Cook. But that's been an encouraging thing to me. And, and Naomi Gurma, I thought was excellent against Jamaica. Again, big asterisks here. Jamaica was terrible in that game. They were really, really bad. They didn't threaten the U.S. in the way we thought they would after yeah. beating Mexico. They were bad. They, they just were. And I, I feel bad for them. But, but they were not up to the challenge against the U.S. They were tired and disorganized. But Gurma, 
She did everything you could have asked her to do, at least to my eye, in that game. She was up to the challenge, that particular challenge on that particular day. She checked that box in the, in the short timeline, if we want to look at it in that shorter timeline view. She checked that box. She was clean on the ball. I thought she defended pretty well against Bunny Shaw. She had some touches to get out of pressure. She has that ball out to Sophia Smith for their first goal, just this, this right-footed ball from left center back that kind of bends around and finds Smith on the right side to play her in on that side. I thought Gurma showed just about everything she could have in that game. I liked her a lot. I hope we see more of her. I'd love to see her start again in this tournament. I think now, as and we were talking about Becky Sauerbrunn just a minute or two ago, as Sauerbrunn continues to age, she's 37 right now. I, I don't want to ever rule out Becky Sauerbrunn because she's incredible. But I think as she continues to age, it's not unreasonable to question every single roster that comes out between now and the World Cup and between the World Cup and the Olympics, whether or not Sarabun should be on it. And we don't need to have that conversation right now, but Gurma is pushing her way up the depth chart. She's at least establishing herself, it was just her third cap last night, as a member of that depth chart, mm-hmm. and that's impressive to me. Absolutely. And I, and I think you're right. that w- The job done last night on Jamaica, and specifically Bundy Shaw, uh, should not be overlooked. I think you're absolutely right to point out that basically getting that result against Mexico, as Jamaica did, uh, she, I think, pretty much used all the, ta- all the gas in the tank uh, and didn't have time to get, the, to get the full refill before this game. And so I think did end up drifting wide on occasion. And I think the commentators were saying that was maybe to try to like isolate Fox or exploit space left behind. And that may well have been part of it. But I also think uh, if you're a tired uh, center forward, like and and especially with her like her physical stature, there would be an inclination to you know what I'm gonna conserve my 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 strength. I'm gonna kind of battle in the middle. I'm gonna be that central hold up option, or I'm gonna flick it on, or whatever it may be. But I'll kind of battle through the middle and let other people attack out wide. So maybe there is some targeting to it. Maybe there is some tactics behind it. But I also have to believe that she loses a few challenges and gets knocked off the ball a little bit, and maybe she starts moving wide to try to find space. And to me, that's a ringing endorsement for center backs that they're forcing the main opposition position threat yeah. out wide to find the ball and to find some space. So I would give uh, a lot of credit to German Cook for that one. I would give a ton of credit to the fullbacks. Emily Fox, we've already mentioned, but Sophie, Sophia Huerta especially, I thought was excellent last night. Again, caveat against the tired Jamaica that left some openings, but her sort of willingness to get forward, obviously pretty, pretty strong, but also her willingness to play forward regularly and immediately when the ball is on, I thought was especially strong. And she plays some great passes. I think she has the MLS assist for one of the goals. Maybe it's one of the ones that's called back. But I I thought the distribution from right back, that it wasn't just get to the end line and cross, uh, did make me pretty happy. Huerta has a heck of a right foot, doesn't she? I mean, her right foot is really good. Taylor, I love... I love that you mentioned her distribution, and correct me if I'm wrong if I misinterpreted, but I, I think you're talking about her distribution from deeper areas, right? Yes, so her playing exactly. a ball, yes, opening yes. up and playing down the line, right? She did have one of those balls, and I also cannot remember which goal it was, but I'm pretty sure it was the MLS uh, assist like you're talking about. It was about. the fifth goal. It was Trinity Rodman. Huerta, with a, I have it written down as, with a perfect vertical ball through for Pew, who then yeah. hits it first time across the goal for Trinity Rodman. Yeah, I mean, that is a real asset to this U.S. team because, Taylor, it, it helps us get back to, again, so my just biggest point about this team is them being too cross-heavy. When you have balls from deep with that right back or with whether it's Fox on the left, maybe too, but especially when it's Huerta or O'Hara on that right side, when you have that ball, maybe they're 30 yards behind the winger on that side and, and 20 yards or 15 yards behind the number eight on that side. 
when they're playing someone in behind, the U.S. has the athleticism at least the majority of the time to go and meet that ball if it's hit well. And Huerta's balls usually are hit well. They have the athleticism to get in behind and then hit a ball into the box or get to the end line and cut it back in space because they already have that advantage because their momentum is carrying them quicker towards the ball than the defender who has to react and then actually track back and make a play. Huerta's distribution from those deeper spots, I think, is huge for this U.S. team. I want to draw the distinction, though, between some of those passes from deep and just still being cross-happy, which I think Huerta was. I have maybe five crosses that don't really come to anything, just five hopeful crosses, and, and a couple of turnovers as well from Huerta in that game against Jamaica, just to, just to point out that I think the U.S. should continue to be more deliberate in trying to take advantage of their deeper fullbacks, which we've also talked about, playing someone in behind, getting active movement from the forwards or from the number eights, playing those players in behind the back line, and then taking advantage from there. You have real assets in distribution from deep. If you take advantage of those instead of just saying, where to, yeah, get forward and pump a ball into the box and we'll hope for the best and we'll just clean it up when we get there. I think, I think if you draw that distinction and really focus on playing those deeper balls from deeper areas, the U.S. is just a much better team, and we saw flashes of that certainly from Huerta last night. I agree, and that is one area where I'm inclined to say, maybe this is incorrect, but my read on it is that that's the thing that she has been asked to do, yes. uh, that sort of just get the ball in the box and see what happens. And I don't love that because when I think the cross is on, when the United States has built up such that they either have – created openings through a swift counter or they've just kept the possession moved uh their opponents so that they've been stretched out and then you can find the ball through or across that works really well for me uh, exemplified by the Mallory Pugh disallowed goal Huerta puts that on a dime that ball in is so perfect that Pugh just has to be there and get a body part to it I think she gets the instep to it and in it goes and it's a good goal it's a good finish it ends up being disallowed for offside some questionable decisions maybe not on that one uh, but I think Ashley hatches one I wasn't quite sure how she was offside either way that ball from Huerta shows me that her her crossing can be inch perfect definitely but I think then if you look at some of the other crosses to me that says those are just more about like put it in the mixer and see what happens and I do think the United States has the technical ability to not have to rely on that so much it almost feels like at that point you're saying we're the better team we know they're gonna make a half play or there'll be a scramble and then we can create like uh pounce off of that and that would be the going back to the original point Joe from the very beginning of this show that would be the thing that France Wendy Renard is not yeah, gonna give you not gonna happen, a sort of right? uncertain thing she's gonna head that ball clear and away France goes yeah Taylor that's exactly right you think about just defenders clearing the ball out of the box if it's Renard or whoever yeah. for for a good team or just a solid defensive block that really doesn't allow you much space and they just force you out wide if the U.S. isn't working on those central combinations now and trying to learn how to break through blocks more centrally just to diversify the attack they're not going to be equipped to do that when the time comes, and they are just going to fall back to old habits and pump in balls from wide areas on the right and on the left. So I think that's a great point. The other thing, talking about these central combinations, I really enjoyed getting to see the Ashley Sanchez-Rose Lavelle number eight pairing, or number 10 pairing, whatever you want to call it. Taylor, was it? Yes, sir. Okay, I'm biased. I'll just go ahead and say it at this point. I I love watching Ashley Sanchez. Ariana Cascone wrote about her for Bacula, which makes you think Mm -hmm. I'm not the only one. I really appreciate it. I know Bells, Adam Bells loves Ashley Sanchez, too. There's a nice little group of us outside of the the NWSL diehards that I think have loved her for a long time. She's so good. And I I think she makes the team way more fun. And I I think, Taylor, she might even make the team better in games like these against teams that are going to be a little deeper and are going to give you the ball and force you to break them down in one way or another. Are you with me on that? Do you think that she makes this team better, at least in certain situations? 
I absolutely do. And I will acknowledge my own bias. Uh, Aha, the, welcome aboard. The TSS, oh, I will say the TSS <laughs> Ashley Sanchez hype train started maybe before she was at UCLA. Oh, or, good. Okay. Or like good. right when she got there. I think a uh, longtime listener, Ira Jersey, was scouting her at one oh, point nice. for the Total Soccer Show when she was nice. at UCLA. Uh, yeah. And I've and then uh, the DC connection. I like her with the spirit, but I really like her with this team and especially with Rose Lavelle. Uh, I think I like her more than Lindsay Horan, at least the Lindsay Horan we saw against Haiti. I just think Ashley Sanchez does have that sort of ability to combine with Ro- Rose Lavelle through the middle. I think she uh, can combine well with the attacking line but also just pops up in unexpected areas and has that rotation where she'll move wide sometimes but be central other times and I think is still learning how to handle those variations in attacking play because she's relatively new to the U.S. national team but with that said I think she brings just a new level to the team and a new expectation there was there was a moment in the first half when I think the U.S. is still 2-0 up and there's a, a ball into her from Emily Fox Mallory Pugh I think has has checked to Emily Fox, so she's a little bit deeper. And the ball uh, is played from Fox to uh, Ashley Sanchez, and Sanchez does does an immediate sort of outside of the foot flick for Pew. Uh, and I think if Pew were in her normal position, it goes right into her her kind of trajectory. But Pew had had been slow, and then you see her have to accelerate to get on the end of that one. And maybe that was just a mistimed sequence, but for me, it was also a little bit of a like, hey, we're not slowing down; we got places to be. And that felt like Ashley Sanchez a lot in this game, trying to make things happen. Yeah, I'm pretty good with her and Rose Lavelle in the center of midfield. I like it a lot. And Taylor, you mentioned maybe preferring her over this current version of Lindsey Horan. I think that's another good point. It is complicated when all these players are at their best. It seems to me, though, Taylor, that Lindsey Horan is not at her best right now. I I think she had some good moments against Haiti. She was playing a different position. She was playing as the number six. So that deepest point in the U.S.'s midfield. And, And I don't think she looked great against Jamaica. She doesn't play the whole game, which is understandable. And she is at a different cadence than I think every other player on this team because she played in the Champions League final and and finished up her season with Lyon and hasn't been playing since then. So she's not in season like a lot of these other players are. So it is a different set of circumstances, but she just doesn't look totally there. I think she's maybe dealing with a little bit of an injury as well. So there is that asterisk, but man, I just can't help but think that Ashley Sanchez and Rose Lavelle make a really enticing midfield group and maybe even one, Taylor, that you can get away with against the best of the best, against a team like Canada and CONCACAF or whoever you're playing because of how aggressive and energetic both Sanchez and Lavelle are, especially Lavelle against Jamaica, and we saw this against Haiti too, you see her tracking back. You see her winning the ball. I have two sequences in the first half, the 17th minute and the 45th minute, the 17th in particular. She hustles back, Rose Lavelle, and wins the ball all on her own. Like She is doing the dirty work, even though she's maybe the most creative passer and, and just sauciest player on this team. She's not a luxury player. Rose Lavelle and Sanchez are not luxury players. They are modern Manchester City style number eights who do the dirty work in and out of possession. They press, they track back, they counter press, they do all of that stuff. And because they're so energetic and because their work rate, again, especially Lavelle, I noticed against Jamaica, you can carry another creative player. You can you can have a little bit more creativity in your midfield and as a result in your team because you're not really compromising as much defensively. Now they don't have the same profile as Lindsay Horan and I, I'm not totally sure yet that Horan isn't in this best midfield for the U.S. I think she might be. But man, I just get more and more into this Lavelle Sanchez dual number eight thing every time we see it. We've seen it a couple times recently and it's it's just awesome. 
What have you made of Ashley Hatch as the number nine then? Because uh, Alex Morgan gets the goal or a couple goals against Haiti, I forget. Uh, but certainly the lovely little like outside of the foot flick at the near post. Uh, yeah. Alex Morgan can always get those goals. Ashley Hatch did not against Jamaica. Uh, and I'm not sure. I mean, that certainly wasn't for lack of trying. She hits the woodwork at least once. Uh, but I also felt like she was being asked to drop in a lot more, sometimes demand that I saw Emily Fox one time just fully yell at her for not being there fast <laughs> enough. So I think there's high demands on Ashley Hatch. She didn't get the goal, but I guess it feels almost like the conversations we have about Jesus Ferreira, that maybe she's doing other things that allow other people to score goals. I thought Hatch was fine against Jamaica, and maybe I need to go back through and watch her involvements. I, I'm not too upset with the fact that she didn't score. Uh, that stuff happens. Expected goals, blah, blah, blah. We don't need to get into that. But she gets into a couple of good spots. She has a close-range shot blocked in the 34th minute against Jamaica. She has a shot off a corner kick in the 25th minute. She was getting into spots to, to create goals or create goals for herself. And I think that's a good thing. I still don't know that I love her movement as much as I enjoy Alex Morgan's movement and certainly as much as I enjoy a healthy Katarina Macario's movement. I thought, and Ali Wagner pointed this out, I believe it was Ali Wagner, on the, the broadcaster of Paramount Plus yesterday. There's a sequence in the 42nd minute. I think Mallory Pugh has the ball, and she hits an early ball into the box for Ashley Hatch. And at first, I looked at it and said, well, that, that ball was nowhere near Ashley Hatch. But then I went back to watch it and, and listened to Ali Wagner's commentary, and she was totally right. Hatch just stopped to run. She didn't actually go into the space that you would expect the ball to come using the right angle from Pew to hit that ball into the box. She just kind of stops her run, and the ball just sails in and hatches nowhere near it, nowhere near it because she, she just gave up on that play, or at least she just didn't read the situation right in the same way that Pew read it. I feel like Hatch's movement and her ability to read the game is just not at Alex Morgan's level. And, and to, to a certain extent, that's understandable. They have very different amounts of experience. But Hatch is a seasoned pro at this point. She's, she's won awards in the NWSL. She's a good goal scorer. But I don't think I've seen anything, Taylor. I know this isn't really the question you asked, but I think it's an interesting one nonetheless. I don't think we've seen anything from Hatch to make me think, yeah, she has a leg up on Alex Morgan, or, or she's really in that top two, everybody's healthy striker conversation. I think she's still pretty clear, clearly second behind Morgan in this roster and third behind Morgan and a healthy Macario on a full-strength, fully-fit U.S. roster. That's not a bad place to be yeah. for Ashley Hatch. You're, you're right on the cusp, but I think she hasn't quite seized her opportunity either in this game or in those, those pre-tournament Columbia friendlies that, that we saw over the last week or so. I think that's a, that's a really good and fair point that like she's she's been good enough. But when you're behind Katarina Macario and Alex Morgan, you have to be kind of exceptional and exceptionally consistently to maybe to maybe close some of that ground. Uh, what did you make of Trinity Rodman then playing as the number nine for the for the end of that game? She gets to the goal. Uh, Ali Wagner, I think, was very if not confused, then sort of amused <laughs> by Trinity Robin coming in and playing centrally, whereas we've usually seen her wider. Uh, did you make much of that? Do you think she enters into that conversation, or do you think we'll continue to see Trinity Rodman discussed as a winger? Yeah, I think she's still a winger. I, I, to me, that situation felt like we don't want to even have to worry about putting Alex Morgan on the yeah. field. She's still good our call. number one. Good call. So let's run Trinity out there and let her buzz around the field for a while and score a goal. So good mm -hmm. on her for doing that. I thought she had some really nice moments in this game. But I don't think, at least I'm not ready to say that she's really on that nine depth chart yet. I think she's still third out wide. Maybe she's third out wide and third at the nine in this particular roster, but it seems like Midge Purse 
because of the the timing of substitutions both in this tournament and the Columbia friendlies. And I think how good Mitch Purse has been, by and large, in, in those games. Purse is pretty clearly, in my mind, the, the second right winger behind Sophia Smith. Then you have Trinity Robin, who now apparently can do a few different things, which is good for her. But I think she's still more of a, of a third right winger than she is in, in the number nine depth chart. Yeah, I think f- for now, uh, since we would assume we'll continue to have Megan Rapino involved as well, it feels like it's Pew Rapino one side, it's uh, Smith and Purse the other, it's Macario and Morgan in the middle, and then Rodman is maybe like the seventh uh, attacker on that list who can play all three positions, and maybe other ones. We don't know. She's pretty versatile. Uh, one other thing I wanted to spotlight that I really enjoyed from the Jamaica game and from the Haiti game, but I really noticed it against Jamaica, is on the defensive side of things. Uh, the U.S. obviously keeping a clean sheet. We've talked about the center-back pairing. But one thing I saw like happen pretty much every single time Jamaica had a set piece, especially a throw-in, and especially in their half, but especially, especially in their own defensive third, a lot of especiallys in there, uh, the United States really crowding numbers to one side. And it stood out to me because Mallory Pugh, at one point midway through the first half, uh, ball goes out on the far side, and she turns and sort of starts moving either back or maybe towards the U.S. bench to get a drink of water because it was, uh, by all accounts, very hot. Uh, but then I think you can see her have that moment of like, oh, wait. And like she shakes her head and then goes on, a, would say, 75 percent speed, a good 30 yard run to get into position like to the center right of the pitch. And it's I think. Maybe eight of the U.S.'s outfield players are crammed into like one 30 yard stretch of the field. And. I, within maybe five seconds, Jamaica just boot the, lo- the ball long, uh, and it's, I think, Cook brings it down in a way the United States goes. But the sort of intensity of how the United States pressed to win that ball back or force the ball long, even if they're attacking play, even if they're maybe looking for crosses too early or they're a little bit too slow at times in their possession, they really need that uh, the Goldilocks porridge situation. Sometimes too <laughs> slow, sometimes too fast. That's fine, just right. But even when that's the case, the way they work off the ball to get that ball back, it never lets up. They sort of never relent, and you never let your opponent find much of a rhythm. And I think that also made me very happy because it's just such a disruptive way to play for the opponent while playing right into the U.S.'s hands. And that has me just so excited for games against teams that will open up a little bit yep. and that will play uh, just even even just a little bit. Jamaica did some of that in the first 15 minutes, and the U.S. punished them for it at least once and, and almost punished them for it a number of other times. Or, or maybe it was all a lot of almost, but there were a lot of, of dangerous moments in that game in the first half and in the early part of the first half that came from some of those aggressive situations mm-hmm. for the U.S. I just love watching this team run and, and press and play. Pretty much everybody is into doing that stuff, and it just makes this team so much more dangerous and entertaining when the game is is just a tiny bit more open. Hopefully we'll see that throughout the knockout rounds, more of this tournament, and then then going forward as well. All right, I have one question for you about those knockout rounds, Joe. So we'll take one more break, then we will be back to conclude our U.S. WNT chat, and we'll talk about two Americans who are on the move uh, in the transfer window back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Uh, the United States, as we said, won its first two games. They are on top of Group A with six points. They have a game against Mexico, who have thus far lost both of their games, somewhat surprisingly. So we would assume the U.S. will at least get the one point there. We would hope that would be the case. Uh, but either way, we're, the U.S. is advancing to the knockout round, uh, where they will likely play the second-place team in Group B. Right now, that's Costa Rica, which could mean a final against Canada, Joe. So USA-Canada in the final. If that were to happen, based on everything we've talked about, based on everything you've seen, what would be your preferred starting 11 for the United yeah. States in that final? Okay, so I'll go back to front here. I still don't know between Alyssa Nair and Casey Murphy. I kind of thought Nair was going to be the runaway number one based off her past experience. Vlaco seems like doesn't think that, and I think that's interesting and encouraging to see him being willing to look at other players. So he said they don't know. They've learned, right? They learned from their mistakes in the Olympics that you need to have like other options there. Yeah, I I don't know if that's a shot at Alyssa Nair, if that's just a commentary on you can't rely on just one player. But either way, yeah, I share your your uh, confusion about that one. I'll say Casey Murphy just because I think she had more to do in her game against Haiti than Alyssa Nair did against Jamaica. Murphy made a a decent save in that first game. So I'm going to say Murphy, but I don't really have a strong preference in in that one. Center backs, man, I'm so tempted to go with Gurma next to Alana Cook. I'm not going to, but I reserve the right, Taylor, if you'll allow me to change (laughs) my mind before that final if the U.S. makes it because I just want to see more of Gurma with the national team before I make any big steps with her, but Sauerbrunn and Alana Cook in the middle, I think makes sense still. I would probably still go with Kelly O'Hara on that right side, but I'm not mad at at Huerta starting either. I just want to see fewer crosses from whoever's playing that spot and more distribution from deeper areas and just combination play in the attack. Fox is the only player that makes sense on the left still, even though Sana I thought was fine against Jamaica. Fox is the only left-footed fullback in this squad. I would have Andy Sullivan at the number six. She gets a, a game off against Jamaica, but she's still the only true six in this squad, and I think she can do that job just fine. I would put Lavelle and Sanchez ahead of her. I am ready to make that jump. So those would be my two number eights, Lavelle on the right, Sanchez on the left. Sophia Smith would be my right winger. Mallory P would be my left winger. And Alex Morgan would be my number nine. It's a really dangerous front three combined with those number eights. That's just a a brutal team to play against. And I hope we see the best out of this group and really them firing on all cylinders by the time or if they actually get to the final. If they were to cross, let's say, 30% less, I do feel like that's a team that has 85% possession against most teams. (laughs) Uh, That's a very technical, very good team. Joe, if that's the team that starts in the final, if the United States uh, is able to make it there, I'm sure we will be talking about your abilities to predict the future. We will be talking about more U.S. women's games in the (laughs) CONCACAF W Championship. But for now, we know they're going to the World Cup. I believe if they make the final, that means they will be going to the Olympics as well. So fingers crossed crossed on that front. But Joe, we know no, no longer need to cross our fingers when it comes to figuring out what happens next for Tyler Adams, because we know he's playing for Leeds. You and I have not talked about this since the move was made official, which it now is. Adams reunites with Jesse Marsh at Leeds. He's played for him, I think, believe twice uh, in two other countries, yep. once in the United States, once in Germany. Uh, and I said this with Brian Sharetta, in case you haven't had a chance to listen, Joe, or listeners haven't, that I felt sort of mixed about this, not because I don't like the move. I think it makes a ton of sense. I think he'll be very good for Leeds, and I think if he has some time to just sort of improve little aspects of his game over the course of the season, I think it makes him a better player overall. It's simply just the way he 
he left Leipzig that left me feeling just sort of like, you know, just a little sour taste that usually when it's a big player leaving, it's for a lot of money and it's kind of dragged out and the, the clubs are all in for him and it's this huge big money swoop. And with Adams kind of ended up being surplus to requirement. Uh, so broadly speaking for you, Joe, how are you feeling about this move to Leeds? I think it's a good move for Leeds. I think it's an okay move for mm. Tyler Adams. Mm. I, mean, I don't like that downturn. I don't like that downturn, Joe. He fits. He clearly fits under Jesse Marsh. I think it's it's fun to see those players, or, or Adams and Marsh, excuse me, back together. It's kind of one of American soccer's best bromances. You have Brendan Aronson involved. There's lots of Americans and a lot of good reasons to watch this Leeds team for us next year. That's all well and good. But I just can't shake this idea that this isn't what we thought Tyler Adams was going to be doing after he was done at RB Leipzig, right? It just it just wasn't. And the truth is he wasn't able to stay healthy and he wasn't able to keep up with the stylistic transformation that that Leipzig team underwent. And Jesse Marsh wasn't able to keep up either, right? I mean, he just had different ideas, Marsh, and so that's why he's no longer there. And then you have Tyler Adams, who very much fits the classic Red Bull pressing model that Marsh still champions. So I think it's unfortunate because I was hoping that we would see Adams improve his play and possession to the point where he could really make a mark on that Leipzig team or he could go and play for a, a top five Premier League team or a, a good team in, in, I guess, Italy. Other than that, I mean, he's not going to play for Real Madrid or Barcelona. So that's, that's kind of it other than staying in the Bundesliga and maybe moving up one rung, which at this point clearly is not going to happen. So it, it's kind of a bummer to me, Taylor, just looking back on, on what we thought Tyler Adams could do and sort of now what are, are very clear limitations in his game, I, I'm not opposed to him going and playing at Leeds. I think it could be a good spot if he can stay healthy as he heads into the World Cup to stay fresh and to stay yeah. game fit and all that stuff. But, I mean, Leeds is going to be, what, mid-table at best this season? That's a realistic boost for them from almost getting relegated on the last day, just surviving, and now coming into this 2022-2023 season, mid-table feels fair. They're not going to be playing in Europe, at least not this season, not next season most likely. So I don't, I don't love the move. I don't absolutely hate the move either, but I'm, I'm just not fully there yet with this being what I wanted it to be for Tyler Adams. Not that what I wanted actually matters in this yeah. case. <laughs> no, it, do- it does. He asked me. Uh, Tyler Adams let okay, me know cool. that he was worried about your thoughts Sweet. before he made this Appreciate move. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, a couple more things. Uh, Brian wrote a piece uh, kind of breaking down this move. Two points he made there. One, it's that it is a much more physical league. So to your point about you're hoping Tyler Adams stays fit, so am I. I hope he survives his first like crunching tackle and pops right back up and keeps going. Uh, but it is also, and you sort of hinted at this too, Joe, the first time Adams will be playing for a bottom half club uh, with the Red Bulls uh, playing in Major League Soccer. There was all, always an expectation that they would at the very least be challenging for the playoffs, uh, certainly not getting relegated. Uh, the same thing goes for for Leipzig. So to switch from that to a team who will be fighting for survival, I wonder what that will mean for him if that sort of the survival instincts kick in and that means he's playing better soccer or does the pressure get to him? I guess only time will tell. The way I have maybe chosen to talk myself into this one is by remembering that Leipzig, the knock wasn't uh, like Jesse Marsh just fundamentally didn't understand the team or the players hated him or whatever it was. It's that, and like, lest we forget the conversation after he, he uh, was removed was that he had offered to step down, that he had been, he had told RB Leipzig, I am not the man for this team because they wanted to transition the way they were playing. And he was still playing much more of a uh, high press, like, attack very directly style of play and that's how he was using Tyler Adams Leipzig wanted to transition to more of a possession oriented team that wasn't what what Marsh wanted to do and I think some of the players were at odds with what Marsh wanted versus what had been discussed with them previously 
And so at Leeds, you would assume he has, if not carte blanche, then at least much more freedom to play his style, aggressive pressing, Definitely. attacking, yeah. and then kind of swashbuckling attacks. And I do think that's what Adams was doing for him at Leipzig. So it makes sense that Adams could come in and do a similar job at Leeds. So I have... A lot of optimism about this one because of those reasons, because Brendan Aronson is coming in, and that's a player with long-standing long interest from Leeds. So I think there's plenty to be excited about with Leeds. There's just also reasons for Americans to be nervous. And if Tyler Adams does get injured in the very first game because like Jesse Marsh subbed him on in the final five minutes, I, I feel like that could turn uh, U.S. soccer very angry very quickly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's always that chance. Adams and Pulisic and McKenney and Dest and Gio Reyna need to be in bubble wrap. I mean, that's yeah. why I wrote a piece months ago now, or, or at least a month ago for Backfield, kind of presenting the argument that at least from a national team standpoint, and at least if these players want to thrive at the World Cup, maybe staying, Adams staying at Leipzig, Pulisic staying at Chelsea and, and not being first choice as players like Raheem Sterling come in and other talent comes into Leipzig's midfield wouldn't be the worst thing just because they have not proven that they can stay healthy. That obviously is not going to happen at this point, or at least not in Adam's case. So all the best to him. I think, I think he will do well at Leeds. I think he will be a good player for them and an important player for them again, if he stays healthy, but it, it just isn't quite what I'd hoped to see from him a year ago in terms of this next move. It's not what he hoped to see from himself a year ago. And I, I just hope that he can continue to develop his game and not quite just be that, that same classic just pressing only type of player, but at this point, given how old he is and given this move, that ship maybe has sailed at this point. That's fair. What is the club equivalent of bubble wrap, Joe? I was going to say PSG, but I feel like they like maybe take some time off too much. There's a little bit too much like outside pressure. So my, my assumption is it's Bayern Munich, where there's an like expectation you're going to win the title, <laughs> but maybe it's not as physical of a league. Maybe you're going to have it wrapped up by March, and so you don't have sure. to be quite so physically demanding. Yeah, I think Bayern Munich are the bubble wrap of clubs to play for. Yeah, you can't go wrong with Bayern Munich or PSG in that case, right. Taylor. Yeah, wrap up the league early on, crash out of the Champions League, and call it a day. Uh, all right, so Tyler Adams to Leeds and then Bayern Munich confirmed. I look forward yep. to that. I really do look forward to seeing how Leeds play. I think Jesse Marsh is a very capable and competent manager uh, who will get, I think, the players very motivated for this season. I think there will be a chip on the shoulder. I think there will be a backs against the wall. Calvin Phillips is gone. Can they survive? They're going to lose all their best players. There's no chance. And I think that motivates the team. I hope it motivates Tyler Adams. Uh, listeners, we wanted to talk about another American on the move. Joe really wanted to talk about Griffin Yao and Brian Reynolds uh, moving right. to Westerlo. He had a lot yep. of thoughts on Westerlo's promotion campaign last season. Uh, but I think instead, we're going to spend a moment talking about Luca De La Torre moving oh, to Celta Vigo. Sorry man. to dash your hopes, Joe. Uh, but if rumors... I, actually, I think it's not even rumors anymore. I believe it's confirmed. Yeah, it's done. I My my, my note on this one was Luca De La Torre to Celta Vigo. That seems wildly sensible. Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> all of that. Yeah, 100%. I could not have said that any better. It it does, right? I think they paid $2 million yep. for him, according to fees, or, or $2 million something. It's right in that range. It's, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. This whole career arc for Luca De La Torre, over the last few years at least, has just made sense. Going from Fulham, where he just wasn't playing and wasn't really happy with that situation, to a, a pretty bad Eredivisie team, but to an Eredivisie team mm -hmm. nonetheless, where it gets him into the national team picture. He gets exposure both in the Netherlands and with the U.S. Now moving to a mid-table La Liga team, it's a much better level and a much better team where he's shown, I think, Taylor, that he's ready for that kind of move and he's ready for being in a more competitive playing environment, playing against better and higher quality teams 
All of this makes sense. It's a smart and sensible transfer from Celta de Vigo. That makes a ton of sense. They finished, I believe, 11th in La Liga last year. They play, and, and shout out to some very helpful people on Twitter who helped me out with this. And I, I did a little bit of research as well. It looks like they play more of a 4-4-2 diamond kind of shape. Yep. So there's plenty of spots in central midfield for him to to get minutes. I don't know what that process will look like. I still need to do a deeper dive in terms of who are the players ahead of him and how much do we think he might play. But it, it just feels right, even if he's not playing every game at the beginning of the year, it feels like this is a good chance for him to develop, to really push himself to have to compete in training every single day, to elevate his game and to get ahead in the depth chart. All of this feels right, Taylor. You said it really well. I said it longer and hopefully still no, kind man, of well, but with you. we're definitely on the same page. Yeah, I'm, we're also on the same page about the confusion about Celta Vigo's formation. I saw it listed as a 4 one 3 2 and I think you're correct, Joe, that that's basically a 4-4-2 diamond. So I, I agree with you there, and I agree with you that that means lots of different opportunities and positions for Luca De La Torre to potentially uh, be bedded in. But I think it's just ultimately, it's just a move that really, it's a sensible transfer, it's a sensible amount of money. It, it's just, it's a smart decision for me because it's not going to a club where they're higher, higher profile name, maybe there's a little bit more money, but you know he's not going to be playing. And I look at him in relation to somebody like Sebastian Salcedo, who we haven't seen in a very long time. I texted Graham about this because he spent the latter half of the season last year at Livingston. And Graham basically said, like, I remember seeing him play, so I know he was on the field. I don't have much to say about him, and I'm pretty sure Livingston supporters were okay with him not being back next year. But that's a player who moved to the Premier League and I think had the expectations that with Norwich there would be a breakthrough. Maybe there's a loan or two, and that hasn't quite happened. And Josie Altador going way back when. It's the, Josie moved to Villarreal. Uh, Freddie Adu moving to Europe maybe too soon. Sometimes prioritizing that big club name. Matt Miazga to Chelsea, another one. When you're looking for the money, when you're looking for the big, high-profile club, it doesn't always mean that you're going to play there. It, do- it usually means you won't. And so I think Luca De La Torre, to go to Heracles and sort of grind but get those minutes and play consistently, that certainly raised him in our estimations, or I'll speak for myself, my estimations. And I think we saw him develop his game, get better at certain things, such that Greg Berhalter calls him in and he doesn't really skip a beat with the U.S. national team, and now we would expect him to be in Qatar. Now yeah. he's going to a La Liga club who aren't the best. They're 11th, they're mid-table, but comfortably mid-table, and I think he will get minutes there. And it's just, it's a smart trajectory for a player that I think had a rough go for a while, and I'm really excited for this move. I think... It, like, I think if I were more excited about Tyler Adams, if basically, if, if Leipzig had just said, like, we don't want to sell Adams, and then did, it would completely make me 100% on board for this transfer. It's just that Leipzig were so clearly okay with it that it makes it like a B plus. But I would say, uh, because of that, th- this one right now is my favorite move an American has made in the window so far. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving the Adams transfer for doing grading scales like a, a C plus or a B minus. I'm giving the De La Torre one an A. Yeah. Like, I think this is a really good move. It's a it's a smart move and for all the reasons we've already talked about. I think he's ready for it, and I, I'm really looking forward to watching him play in La Liga next year. And last thing, speaking of La Liga, is just that it's La Liga. We've had Shaq more. I can't remember if he was actually in La Liga or if he's always been. Yeah, he, he was okay. for a while, yeah. But I I go back to, I talked about this once many, many years ago at this point, but I've always wondered, Tab Ramos in the 94 World Cup, uh, when he gets his skull fractured by Leonardo, another reason to dislike Brazilian Leonardo, formerly of PSG. uh, Not the Ninja Turtle? No, I mean, there's reasons to dislike that Leonardo, but I think they're they're more nitpicky than the reasons to dislike Brazilian Leonardo. Uh, But when Ramos has his skull fractured, he is... 
he might be about to move to Celta Vigo now that I think of it, but he was definitely moving to a team in Spain. And I've always wondered if he had gone there and had success, would that have opened that door a little bit more? And I think there's, there are harsher requirements about uh, foreign players and the naturalization proce- uh, process. But I've, I've always wanted more Americans in Spain because you always hear it's, it's, there's so much more technical ability. It emphasizes the technical play and possession and systems and all that good stuff. And I want Luca De La Torre to go to a league, to a team where that will continue to be developed and you increase that football IQ a little bit. And so my other hope would be that this opens the door for more Americans to be in La Liga. Uh, Let's hope that continues to be the case. Uh, But for now, Joe, any other Americans or any other notes on Adams or De La Torre? I don't think so. I'm I'm interested to see how the rest of this transfer window goes. It's already been a little hectic, mm-hmm. both for these national team players and for a lot of the younger players that are either moving from MLS or, or trying to find a new home in Europe. I, I think there'll be plenty more for us to talk about on this front as the summer goes on. I do have one more question for you, Joe, but it's not about an American. It is about a, a CONCACAF player. Uh, I had a friend ask me this, and I feel like it makes a lot of sense. It just also makes me nervous for a couple different reasons. Uh, but Cristiano Ronaldo not participating in the Manchester United preseason tour. We, we will assume that he is going to be gone when the season starts, and I am A-OK, thumbs up with that. Uh, but that does leave a pretty sizable gap in that number nine spot uh, where they probably already needed to reinforce. And my friend uh, messaged to ask about Jonathan David. Yep. Does Jonathan David uh, tick a lot of boxes for you when it comes to Manchester United under Eric Ten Hag? I, I just think Jonathan David's a very good soccer yeah. player. And I think he is a more versatile and, and better profile for what Ten Hag will likely want. Yep. Ronaldo, I don't think, makes a ton of sense in this team. He doesn't do a lot of work defensively at this point. He's not really that well-rounded nine that you need. In terms of CONCACAF nines, Kyle Lahren's already found a new home, so he's kind of off the table at this point, nor do I think Manchester United would move for him. David makes a, a decent amount of sense. I don't think he's a guy you see coming into this group and immediately becoming a 20-goal-a-year scorer in the Premier League. I think it might take him a little more time, but I don't hate that, Taylor. And I hope for you as a Manchester United fan uh, that that you would enjoy that if it happened to be able to set aside the anti-Canadian nature that we all have to have. Yeah, but course. I think it I think it could be good. It really yeah. would be. I think the reason why I said it would make me uncomfortable is just that like every time he gets demonstrably better, I would be really excited, but then like 5% more nervous oh, no. about the U.S. Yeah. dealing with <laughs> yeah. that. But I think, speaking as a Manchester United fan, like I, I'm kind of tired of players coming in with what I perceive to be a you're welcome, I'm here mentality. And I feel like Jonathan David would come in with a I'm excited to be here, thank you for having me here sort of mentality sure. uh, because of that jump up, but because it's it's Manchester United, I feel like that's a team that he probably would have known about a fair amount uh, growing up. Uh, so hopefully, if that were to happen, it would all go well. Who knows if it will, but Joe, I'm glad that you're on board, Jonathan David, to Manchester United. Uh, and then let's move, I don't know, Chris Richards to Leeds. That's the other one. Let's get one more American in the Premier League just to make sure that Leeds remain remains the dominant U.S. team. And I think that is a rumor that I've actually seen now that I mentioned that. I- I'm down. I'm not <laughs> even right. going to lie. I'd be here for that move. All right. Let's just get a, let's get everybody to Leeds and then bubble wrap them. Joe, I like yep. this this com- combination plan. Uh, congratulations to us for that. Congratulations to the U.S. women's national team for qualifying for the World Cup and winning their first two games. Long may it continue. Joe Lowry, thank you so much for talking all the soccer with me this week. I look forward to talking more of the soccer with you next week. Right back at you, Taylor. Listen Listeners, thank you very much for joining us. We will talk to you next week.
Smash it!